Today's reading comes from Isaiah 40, 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with him. For over a half a century, Oswald Lawrence's voice can be heard in the underground transit system in London. He made a very simple, not a recording, but a very important public safety announcement. And that was to all the passengers, mind the gap. In 2007, he passed away. And his uh, his widow, Margaret, obviously missed him very much. She loved him deeply. And so to find some comfort, she would go to the embankment station near her house. And she would sit there and she would hear the voice arguing. Well, in 2012, she went to the station like home and she sat down to hear his voice, but it was gone. And they're modernizing the system. Uh, they had done away with his recording and they had gone to the electronic recording. She was devastated and she went to the transit authorities and she asked if she could have the, the recording of his voice. And they were you know, undone with compassion and kindness and the thought of this. So they went into the archives and they were able to find the recording and they, did, they digitized it for her. And they went ahead and that embankment station was close to her house. They recorded his voice. They put his voice back in the recording so that she could go there and hear it. Today, if you go to the embankment station on the Northern Line and the London transit system, you will hear a 50, 1950 recording of Oswald Lawrence's voice saying, Mind the gap. Comfort. We pray. We pray comfort in the midst of our disappointment, in the midst of our grief. In the midst of our pain, we crave comfort. Those are the first two words that open Isaiah chapter 40. 
You say, why? Why does the beginning of this chapter open comfort? Comfort? Well, because God's people had experienced by this point and more to come by a lot of disappointment and failure. You go to verse 2 and see a picture or a description of this. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare, that word can mean hardship, is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What is the hardship that's referred to in verse 2? Well, back in chapter 39, Isaiah predicts that God's people would be taken into exile in Babylon. And indeed, that happened in 586 B.C. It was over a quarter of a century later that it would happen. But they were sent into exile. And while they were sitting in exile in Babylon, they were a far cry, very far cry from the promise that God had given Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. When God said to Abraham, you're going to be a mighty nation, you're going to be a blessing to the whole world. God's people had failed their call. And they were suffering heavily in exile because of disappointment, failure. We learned later in Isaiah 40 that as they're in exile, they began to blame God for it. It was His fault they were in exile. So they blame God in the midst of their disappointment and failure. Disappointment, failure, grief is part of the human condition. If you have a pulse this morning, you know disappointment. In fact, if I were to ask you to take out a piece of paper and write down all the disappointments in your life, and if you were assured no one else would see that, you would fill that piece of paper up. Disappointment and failure is a part of life. We become disappointed in our own ideals. We become disappointed in romance. We become disappointed in people that we should be able to trust. We become disappointed in our careers. We become disappointed in ourselves. And we don't like to sit in disappointment. We want comfort in the midst of it. So a lot of times, we tend to manufacture comfort. And one of the ways we try to manufacture comfort when we're disappointed is by blaming God, blaming others. Just as Israel did. There's nothing new under the sun. So back to the question, why does chapter 40 begin with comfort? Comfort. Because in the midst of your disappointment, in the midst of your failure, and though this may be hard to believe, God's deepest intention towards you is comfort. Have you sinned? Yes. Have you suffered because of your sin? Yes. Does God intend to leave you there? No. Romans chapter 2 says that God's kindness or His comfort leads us to repentance. God's deepest intention towards you is comfort. That is deep within his heart. And there are three voices in Isaiah 40 that describe the comfort of God. 
three voices that I've for to describe this comfort of God and answer the question, what is your only comfort in life? What is your only lasting comfort in life? First, it's the presence of God. Verse 3, a voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is the language describing a king who is coming to visit a town. This is a king that's coming to aid his people. This is God coming to comfort his people. Verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Isaiah is using the imagery here of a rough mountain landscape to describe something very powerful. This terrain, rough mountain landscape, is not conducive to a king visiting. The mountain has to be lowered, the valley lifted up, the uneven places leveled, the rough places smoothed out so that this king can come visit. This rough mountain landscape is a picture of your heart. The pride, the anger, the jealousy, the impurity, the idolatry. And what's so powerful about verse 4 is that none of what I have just mentioned of what's in your heart and my heart hinders God. Your sin doesn't hinder God. It hinders you. And you're unable to raise the valleys, lower the mountains, level out the uneven places. You're unable to get rid of all that so that God can come visit you. But he does do that. He's the one that lowers the mountain, raises the valleys, smooths out the uneven places. You say, how does he do that? Verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What is the glory of the Lord? It's the fiery radiance of his very nature. We see it throughout the whole the Old Testament. There's examples of it. We see it Mount Sinai after God's people have come out of Egypt. We see Exodus 24, 17 tells us that the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. The prophet Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord in the form of a supercharged war chariot coming out of heaven. These are just two examples of many in the Old Testament of what are called theophanies. And that is simply the manifestation, a visible manifestation of the invisible God. And all of these manifestations culminate in the ultimate manifestation that we read about in the New Testament. Jesus, right before he was arrested, right before his death on the cross, said this in John 12, 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The glory of the Lord revealed. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much 
fruit. The glory of the Lord was revealed by a bloody and a beaten man hanging on a cross. It was Jesus' death on the cross that, that lowered the mountains, raised the valleys, made the uneven places smooth and even. It was Jesus' death on the cross that took all the rough mountain landscape of your heart, the anger, the pride, the impurity, the jealousy, the idolatry, all that ugly stuff inside you. Jesus' death on the cross removed so that God could come and visit you. So that you would know His presence. That He would come and visit you not with judgment, but with grace. But with grace, the hidden glory of Christ's first coming won't be hidden at his second coming. When he comes the second time, he'll come and overwhelm you, Lord. You see, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And for all eternity, the new Jerusalem won't have need for sun or moon because Revelation 21, 23 says the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamp. That's Jesus. The entirety of the Bible. The entirety of the Bible is about the glory of God being revealed to humanity. Or said another way, the entirety of the Bible is a story of humanity being awakened to the glorious presence of God from start to finish. That's the story of the scriptures. Is you being awakened to God's glorious presence? You ever been in a grocery store and seen a little child? be separated from her father. Or maybe that happened to you as a child, that devastating moment. Well, what's the look on the child's face when they first become aware that they've lost their father? I mean, it's panic. Right? It's fear. You try to go console that child, doesn't work. Store manager goes and tries to console that child, doesn't work. What's the only consolation for that child? To see that. And to be embraced by dad. Right? Now, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of that child. If it never happened to you, just imagine. And you're running frantically around the grocery store, looking for your dad. And you run down the aisle, and as you get to the end of the aisle, you see this large shadow right, start to come around the aisle. And the shadow is it's, it's your dad, it's the shape of your dad. And immediately when you see that shadow, you're comforted. Because there's hope. Because you know momentarily, dad's going to walk around that thing and embrace you. That's a picture of the story of the scriptures. The story of the Bible is this progressive revealing of the glory of God. It starts in the Old Testament with the sacrificial system, which was a shadow of Christ. And then in Advent, the first coming, Christ actually came. 
He was revealed. The disciples saw him. They touched him. But then he ascended to be invisible once again. This is the, the, the time that we live in between the first and second coming. And we can't see Christ physically. But today's coming when he will be revealed fully. But we live like that child seeing the shadow and, and anticipating at any moment that dad can come around the corner. That's the moment we live in. And your soul, your heart craves that as we see the shadow of Christ and the, the Christ has come and it's still a shadow to some degree now because he has come a second time. It's the presence of Christ and the promise of his coming that awakens your soul. Question is, do you experience Christ's presence? Are you experiencing Christ's presence through the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you seeking Christ's presence through reflection and meditation on His, his Word? Say, I want to hear His voice. This is His voice. His very word. This is his voice speaking to you. Are you are you seeking the, the, the comfort and the presence of Christ? Or are you seeking counterfeit comforts? Because our world, world is full of it. Let me give you one very tangible and I believe relevant example of counterfeit comfort. It's roughly somewhere around three inches. Maybe two inches or so wide, maybe a quarter inch thick, fits in your pocket, your cell phone is full of counterfeit comforts. There's a buffet of things, there's a world inside of it that's available for you to find comfort. And they're counterfeits. When you wake up in the morning, is your first move to your phone? Is your first move to maybe social media? Or maybe the scores from last night? Whatever it may be. Where does reflection and meditation on Christ's word fit into the list? And that's not meant to induce guilt. It's meant to, to extend hope that there is a comfort that's available to you. It's the presence of God. It's the presence of Jesus Christ. And it is available to you through the Word of God and through the Holy Spirit. And it's a comfort that will bring rest to your soul like nothing else that's offered in this world. It's the very presence of God. What is your only lasting comfort in life? It's the presence of God. But second, it's the certainty of God. It's the certainty of God. We pick up the second voice in this passage. Verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Verse 7. The grass withers, the flower fades. When 
The breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass in this, it is imagery of transience. It doesn't last forever. The word beauty in verse 6 is the Hebrew word hesed. It means steadfast love or loyalty. You see what this verse is saying? Grass, which is which transient, it's, it's we, the flesh, us, bodies are referred to as grass, that we're, we're, we don't last forever. And it says that the beauty of the flesh, or our beauty, our steadfast love or loyalty, withers and fades. Human love is unreliable. Human love is fickle. It doesn't last. There was an Indian bride who called off her own wedding after she got the first look at her groom. It was an arranged marriage, and before the ceremonies to take place at that reception, where they, they, they lift the veils, and they lifted the veils, and she looked at the, her groom, and she called off the wedding. She was asked why. She said his dick was too dark and he was too old. Now, Chuck Williams, that's, that's an extreme example of, of the unreliability of human love, but you can absolutely relate to being burned by the unreliability of someone else's love. That's the human experience. Like someone's love that you had trusted in or that you were looking to comfort from and it fails you. That you can relate to. Because that's the reality of life in a broken world. But the love of God is just the opposite. The grass withers, the flower fades, meaning human love withers, human love fades, but the word of our God. The love of God expressed through His Word will stand forever. The love of God is reliable, it's constant, it's certain, it never fails. So the question that you have to ask, because everyone here has been affected by or burned by human love. What is happening when human love fails? In your relationship, in your marriage, in your friendship, whatever the relationship may be, what is happening when human love fails? Look back at verse 7. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows up. Now, this is imagery of an abrasive wind damaging vegetation, damaging grass and flowers. But notice that the grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord, that word breath is the same word used in Genesis 1 to refer to the Spirit of God working in creation. So the grass withers the flower fades when the Spirit of God blows on it. Which means that when you experience human love failing, 
Behind that is the work of the Holy Spirit revealing to you the unreliability of human love and the absolute certainty and reliability of God's love. But the Spirit of God is revealing to you the inadequacy of the human love to which you may be looking to for all comfort. David Brooks is a, he's a cultural commentator. He writes for the New York Times. And he offers this great insight into human love through a novel about a father that is talking to his daughter about his late wife. So this man's wife had died and he's talking to his daughter about it. And listen to what he says. He says, at first, love erupts like a volcano. But then it subsides. And when it subsides, he continues, you have to make a decision. Do you want real love or just being in love? Then he gives this definition for true marital love. Real love itself is what is left over when being in love has burned away. Your mother and I have it. We have roots that grew towards each other underground. And when all the pretty blossoms had fallen from our branches, we found we were one tree and not two. The breath of the Lord blows until the tree blossoms fall off the tree. The Spirit of the Lord blows until the grass withers and the flower fades. And the Spirit does this work to reveal the unreliability of human love and the absolute certainty of God's love. And you say, well, wait a minute. So is there just no, no human love that's worth anything? Are we supposed to just forever forsake any kind of human love? No, not at all. What the Spirit does is deepen the roots of two people into God's certain love. And if you think about the imagery, you have two trees that are a good distance apart, and there is underground one source of water. Both of these trees' roots move towards the source of water. And as they move towards that source of water, they move towards each other and become one. That's what marriage is. As your roots deepen in God's love, you become deeper as one. And some of the superficialities of being, quote, in love, the blossoms begin to fall. But that's the work of the Lord. That's the Spirit of God. Deepening your roots into His unfailing love. When intention descends on marriage, When neither spouse is seeking to understand the other, when silent treatment has entered in, or maybe constant arguing, and it's possible I have just described your marriage right now, when that happens, you've got two choices. 
You either see the grass withering and the flower fading, and believe there's another patch of grass and another flower that won't fade or won't wither. That's a lie. It's a lie that can help. It's a counterfeit comfort. It's a counterfeit hope being dangled out there for you. The other choice that you have, as the grass withers and the flower fades, is to see the Spirit of the Lord at work in your marriage to take you to a deeper place. To root your love for each other in something much deeper. To root your love in the love of God, shown in Jesus Christ. And as both of you are rooted deeper in God's love, you become more and more one. And so I would encourage you, right now, your marriage is struggling. Maybe it's struggling deeply. Maybe there's just deep tension. Silent treatment, coexistence, whatever you want to call it. And you see this counterfeit hope dangling out there. Maybe there's a better patch of grass that won't wither, or a flower that won't fade. See it for what it is. It's a lie. And understand that the Spirit of God is doing a mighty work in your marriage. The tension is the Spirit of God blowing on you to deepen your roots into His certain love. What's the only lasting comfort in life? It's the presence of God. It is the certainty of God. Specifically, the certainty of His love. Finally, presence of God, certainty of God. What's the, the last, only lasting comfort in your life? It's the delight of God. We arrive at the third voice in Isaiah 40. It's in verse 9. Get you up to a high mountain, as I am. Herald good news. Lift up your voice and strength of Jerusalem. Herald good news. This is, this is positive. This is joyful. What's the good news? Verse 10. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. What's his reward? What's his recompense? Well, the fruit of his victory. So what's the fruit of his victory? Verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. That means he carries them close to his heart. And gently lead those that are with young. What's the fruit of his victory? The flock. What's God's reward? It's you. It's me. That's his reward. You say, Matthew, I know me. I know my deep shame, my guilt. I know my sin. There's no way that I am God's reward. Let me, let me reinforce this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 says that you may know. Okay, so if you're going, there's no way. That you may know. 
one of the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What are the riches of God's glorious inheritance? The saints. What are the saints? Those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, the church. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What was the joy set before Jesus? It was the only thing he didn't have. Which was relationship with you and me. Why do we find it so hard to believe that we are God's reward? Why do we find it so hard to believe that we are his glorious inheritance? Why do we find it so hard to believe that we are his joy? That he delights in us? Because so often in human relationships, you experience the opposite of delight. In human relationships, you experience often the opposite of delight. You're never good enough for your spouse. You always feel like a disappointment to your boss. You feel like your parents are always angry with you. You just don't feel delighted in it. And so then you hear God delights in you, you say, no way. Not possible. Because no one else delights in me. And if nobody else delights in me, then surely God can't delight in me. In his book, Connecting, Larry Crabb writes this. A friend of mine was raised in an angry family. Mealtimes were either silent or sarcastically noisy. Down the street was an old-fashioned house with a big porch where a happy family lived. My friend told me that when he was about 10 years old, he began excusing himself from his dinner table as soon as he could he could leave without being yelled at. And walking down to the old-fashioned house down the street, if he arrived during dinner time, he would crawl under the porch and just sit there, listening to the sounds of laughter coming out of this one. When he told me the story, I asked him to imagine what it would have been like if the father in the house somehow knew he was huddled beneath the porch and sent his son to invite him in. I asked him to envision what it would have meant to him to accept the invitation, to sit at the table, to accidentally spill his glass of water and hear the father roar with delight. Give him more water and a dry shirt I want him to enjoy the meal. Larry Crabb is going to say, we need to hear the Father laugh. Change depends on experiencing the character of God. The delight of God changes your hardness and softness, your anxiety into peace, your coldness into warmth, 
through aloofness and disengagement. And it's not only believing that God delights in you, that's important that you believe that, but the more pressing question is, are you experiencing God's delight? Over Are you experiencing His delight? Over There is this connection, there is this link between the delight of God and the delight of others. If you're not experiencing the delight of God, then you won't experience delight over others. If you're not experiencing the delight of God in Jesus Christ, then you're going to be constantly disappointed in us. If you're not experiencing the delight of God, then you're going to be regularly angry with others. If you're not experiencing the delight of God, then people are never going to be good enough for you. Do you delight in your spouse? And I would just say, I wouldn't trust your answer on that. I would ask your spouse. Do you feel delighted in my name? And probably the more redemptive question is, when? When do you feel delighted in by me? Do you delight in your children? Do they feel delighted by you? Do they feel sung over and rejoice over? I ask these questions because your delight in others is an extension of God's delight in you. So when you are experiencing the delight of God, that delight from God will flow through you to those around you. They are absolutely linked together. It's the delight that we read of in Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save, who has saved in Jesus Christ, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Your only lasting comfort in life is the presence of God, the certainty of God, and the delight of God. Let's pray. Father, we confess how hard it is to believe that you delight in us. Because if we're honest, we just don't experience being delighted in by other people much. And then we realize how poorly we delight in others, even our own spouse, our children. Father, would you, by your Holy Spirit, awaken us to your presence? Your glorious presence. And the deep delight that you have in your children who are hidden in Christ. 
Father, you gave us this meal called the Lord's Supper for this very purpose. That we can actually see and taste your delight over us. And so as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, would you prepare our hearts now to receive your delight? Through this sacrament that you have given us, that has been practiced through the centuries by your people, by your children. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.